Welcome to each of you. It's great to see you here tonight. Um, when we started um, a few minutes ago and I opened up with prayer, I just had this like huge thought in my mind that I couldn't form into words and it was something like, it feels like a while since we've been here, but then I couldn't remember why that was or what it was that happened. I felt like I'd been gone or something like that. And then I went back down and we started singing and I remembered, oh yeah, I, I was gone. I was in Florida last week, which is why it feels like it's been a while and it feels like I was gone last week. So, um, welcome. And um, for those who are with us for the first time for uh, Wednesday worship, we're especially glad to have you here tonight. Tonight's lesson is on the topic of the spirit realm. The spirit realm. So I want to talk first off about naturalism versus supernaturalism. We should have a slide for this. There we go. Um, one term evokes mental images of scientists in a laboratory or Darwin's origin of species, naturalism, a naturalistic worldview. The idea of naturalism is that nature is all that, that is. The things that we see, the things we can touch and we can observe, that that's all that exists. The term supernaturalism may bring to mind images of popular movies, which are too many to count, but are on themes such as horror films, or stories of ghosts, or psychics, or haunted houses, or movies about paranormal activity, or aliens, or the demonic, or demon possession, or movies about asylums, and crazy people, and superpowers. These are all common themes in many movies, and for that matter, now a growing number of podcasts and TV shows. We are often tempted to think that the things in the first category of the natural world are real, and then we, temp we are tempted to think that things in the second category are made up, or make-believe, or false, or lies, that supernatural things are fake. Living in a post-enlightenment time, and in a developed nation such as the U.S., further leads us in this direction, to view the supernatural as less than real. While we may live in a naturalistic age and a naturalistic society, we live in a supernatural universe. I'm here to tell you tonight that the movies got a lot more right than what we are comfortable admitting. Now, I took a class on this in seminary. It was called Spiritual Warfare in Evangelism and Missions with Dr. Jonathan Carl. Much of tonight's lesson comes from his, the notes from his course, which he has uh, put on his website, one of his websites, which is linked in the um, notes on the app. By the way, if you want to follow along on the app um, with the notes, I would invite you to do that. Go to uh, the tab for sermons, and then for Wednesday night, and then for Wednesday, uh, basics for believers, and then scroll down to lesson six, and then hit notes under that, and you should be good to go. So, in this class with Dr. Carl, um, one thing he told us at the beginning of the class was about the different approaches to this subject of the supernatural or um, spiritual warfare. And that there is quite a wide range of approaches to this topic within the evangelical world, particularly, well, the church world, but also the academic world, the seminary world. He told us of a certain professor 
from Fuller Theological Seminary, who was notorious for doing this ritual at the start of each semester of his class. His first lecture in the first beginning of class, you know, when they try to get to know the students and the students get to know the professor and they go through the syllabi and uh, the syllabus, syllabuses, the syllabus. Um, and so he would do this ritual uh, where he would exercise a demon from one of his students in class. A different student every year, different, you know, but this was just his thing. This is the way he, he would do this. So he would start off by making everyone in the class stand up. Then he would tell them, because he's trying to find who's got a demon. So he would say, sit down if, and then list off all these things. So for example, sit down if you have never, if you've never tasted alcohol. If you've never had a single drink of alcohol, sit down. Uh, sit down if you've never tried drugs. Sit down if you've never used hard drugs. Sit down if you're a virgin. Sit down if you have um, never been a victim of sexual assault. And so on. He went into more and more traumatizing things. Until by the end of this little exercise, he had identified the person in the room who, in my opinion, was likely the most traumatized person <laughs> in the room, and then had them come up on stage, and then he provoked demons to manifest themselves in this person. And then he would cast the demon out of them. Sounds fun, right? Okay, everybody stand up. <laughs> Just kidding. But this man literally did this year after year after year. So tonight we're talking about the spirit realm. This brings us into our first main point, which is Holy Spirit's. Holy Spirit's. So, our first subpoint is the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the third person of the Trinity. Hopefully you're familiar with that already, but um, the Holy Spirit is equal to the Father and the Son in power and authority and all of his essential attributes. When we say essential attributes, what we mean is the attributes of his essence, the things which are the godness of God, the attributes of the essence of God deity. What this means is that the Holy Spirit is of the same ontology as the Father and the Son, which means the same nature of being. He's the same essence, the same substance as the Father and the Son. But he is not the same person as the Father and the Son. We have one God and three persons. Further, the Father and the Son and the Spirit have um, particular things taking place or that have taken place, and that is the procession of the Spirit. So the, the Holy Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son, not just the Father. So what this means is that you and I receive the Holy Spirit from the Father through the Son. So the Spirit, the Holy Spirit comes to us through Jesus from the Father. Uh, this is the difference, the, the biggest um, paper dif difference uh, between the Eastern Church and the Western Church. And by that, I mean Eastern Orthodoxy and Roman Catholicism, because that is split about a thousand years ago. I think it was 1054, but I could be wrong on that. Uh, there was this great schism, and because of that, um, it was over this issue and a few other issues. But the Eastern Church said, no, we hold to the single procession of the Spirit. This, this, the Spirit proceeds from the Father alone, and the Western Church, the Catholic Church, said, we believe that the Spirit proceeds from the Father and the Son. Now, as Protestants coming out of the Catholic Church, out of the, the Reformation, we hold to the double procession of the Spirit as well, because that is the 
the teaching of scripture. What this also means is that you can only be saved, you can only be regenerated through Jesus. You don't have access to the Holy Spirit through alternate world religions, because that is one of the implications of the single procession of the Spirit. It would mean that other religions can get you to God the Father. Uh, one of the primary, well, books of the Bible, but uh, texts, the, one of the primary texts on the Holy Spirit is John 14 and 16, uh, but also John 3. John 3 speaks of the regeneration of the Holy Spirit, uh, the new birth, very famous verse, John 3, 16. Uh, and then John 14 and John 16 are two of the classic texts on this, as well as Romans 8 and um, other passages. But Romans 14 tells us that the Holy Spirit is the comforter. The Spirit is the comforter. The Spirit is also the helper. And... The Holy Spirit glorifies the Son. The Holy Spirit is pointing glory to Jesus, God the Son. The Holy Spirit also baptizes us or fills us. Well, baptizes and fills. These are two separate things. Uh, Ephesians 5.18 is pretty much your, your primary verse on the filling of the Spirit. Ephesians 5.18 says, Do not be drunk with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. The Greek of this, the the, the literalist of the literal translations of Ephesians 5.18 says, do not be drunk with wine, but be continually being filled with the Spirit. So it's this, this active sense of a thing that you are to continuously be being. Uh, it is being filled with the Spirit is not a one and done thing. It is not being baptized with the Spirit. This is the, one of the differences between the baptism of the Spirit and the filling of the Spirit. When I say Spirit baptism, I don't mean water baptism. So when we dunk someone here in the um, baptistry under my feet, uh, that does not cause them to be baptized in the Spirit. But it is a visible picture of what we believe to be the reality that they have already been baptized in the Spirit. They have already been filled with the Spirit. They've already been immersed into the Holy Spirit. And so we are baptizing them to symbolize this and to symbolize as well their, uh, the washing of regeneration, the renewing of the Holy Spirit, the cleansing of their sins. But Holy Spirit baptism is something that happens once. It happens at conversion. It happens at the time of salvation. That's when a person is baptized into the Holy Spirit. But that's not the same thing as being filled with the Spirit. So, what this means practically, if you're taking notes, we believe in one baptism and multiple fillings. Not multiple baptisms, multiple fillings. Multiple baptisms is something that you would have more in uh, charismatic circles. Um, next, how to be filled. How is a person filled with the Spirit? Well, I'm glad that you asked. I'm glad that you're wondering that. Both Ephesians and Corinthians speak of this. They speak of this idea of being filled with the Spirit, and they speak in almost identical language, but with one or two words missing. But you can read the two, or one or two words difference, but you can read those two verses or those two texts and compare them, and you find that what being filled with the Spirit is caused by is being filled with the Word of God. Being filled with the word of God is what leads to this outworking result, which leads to the fruit of the Spirit. The Spirit produces his fruit in his people, and he does this as a result of their being filled, which comes as a result of being filled with the word of God. 
Um, it's more than just having your head full of scripture. There's also a component of surrender to it. There's a component of asking to be filled. Um, but then ultimately it's all of grace as well, because you can do all of the things and you can ask and you can still be the most wretched roommate you've ever heard of because it's the work of God. So the oh, next uh, fruit of the spirit, we've already uh, spoken about that. And then now let's talk about angels. So we have first the Holy Spirit. Second, we have angels. Uh, we'll spend more time on this because we talk about the Holy Spirit much more. So as far as angels go, there are a lot of different names in the Bible for angels. Uh, there's obviously this first generic word, angel, which is the word angelos or messenger. Uh, it's kind of the standard word for this type of being. Uh, Luke 2 is one text that speaks of it. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. Revelation 22, 6 says, And he said unto me, These words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. And Ephesians 2, 16 says, For surely it is not the angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. After angels, there are also cherubim. Cherubim is the plural of cherub. Whenever you see the, the uh, ending of the suffix, I am, you know that it's plural. Um, so you've got um, Elohim or cherubim or uh, Nephilim or any of these words that end with I am, and it's, it's plural. Um, it's making the word plural. Uh, Genesis 3.24, he drove out the man, and east of the Garden of Eden he placed the cherubim and a flaming sword that turned everyone, or every way to guard the way to the tree of life. These cherubim are also figured, they're, they're created on top of the Ark of the Covenant. Uh, Exodus 25 speaks of that. I don't really want to read that lengthy text right now, but Exodus 25 is speaking about the construction of the Ark, the building of the Ark of the Covenant, and there are these two cherubim on top of it with their wings touching each other and then um, uh, overshadowing this, this Ark, which is also what would be called the mercy seat. Um, the tabernacle had uh, curtains and veils, and on these as well, they were uh, decorated with cherubim. In the inner sanctuary, he made two cherubim of olive wood, each 10 cubits high. That's 15 feet high. Five cubits was the length of one wing of the cherub, and five cubits the length of the other wing of the cherub. By the way, a cubit is a foot and a half, so it's roughly the length from your elbow to your fingertip or a standard normal-sized man. Um, it was 10 cubits from tip to tip, uh, one wing to the other. The other cherub also measured 10 cubits. Both cherub, uh, cherubim had the same measure in the same form. So in these um, temple constructions and the, um, uh, the, the artifacts and things that were being built, um, they, they had a lot of artwork, and that included images of these angels. Now, why is that? Well, it is designed to image or to picture heaven. So that's why um, on the tabernacle and on these, um, these big cl uh, cloths and these, um, man, I'm really struggling to think of words right now. Um, they were decorated with these um, cherubim. 
Another name for angels is host of heaven. Nehemiah 9, 6 says, you are the Lord, you alone, you have made heaven, the heaven of heavens with all their hosts and the host of heavens worships you. Um, they're also in, they're called visible and invisible thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities in Colossians 1 and Colossians 2 and Ephesians 6 and 3 and Romans 8. So Colossians 1.16 says, for by him all things were created in heaven and on earth, visible and invisible, whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities, all things were created through him and for him. We don't have charts in biblical texts. Like the ancient manuscripts don't come with um, charts and graphs and diagrams as it would be very helpful if they did, but unfortunately they don't. So we're just taking these words, these descriptions, and recognizing that there is hierarchy. There are different kinds of angels. There are lots of kinds of angels, but we don't necessarily know a ton of detail. Yes, we know about archangels, um, but as far as thrones, dominions, rulers, and authorities, we can get something out of the word order of that, but there's not a lot of detail given. As I was preparing for this, though, I I was thinking um, just about this as I... Where I've gone from... uh, on this topic, um, in my, my background, we just like didn't talk about angels or demons or the spirit realm at all. And then I went to college and we, we did systematic theology and you have 10 major sections of doctrine and, uh, they saved angelology for the end. And we get, came up to the end of the semester and we ran out of time and they're like, whoops, we're out of time. I guess you'll just have to read about that in the book. And then we take our final exam and we all, we all go home. So I go from that to like, you know, actually reading books and listening to podcasts about this sort of thing. So there's been quite a um, change in my awareness and, and my thinking about these sort of things. Um, but as I was thinking about this, sorry, rabbit trail, but as I was thinking about this and thinking like, okay, there's different types of angels. Well, of course there's different types of angels. The visible world has different types of beings in it. Just think about the different types of cows that there are. There's brown ones and black and white ones and black ones. And there's one with long horns and ones with no horns. And, and that's just some cows then there's also goats and there's sheep and there's horses like there's all different kinds of farm animals and that's not even getting into the the kinds of dogs that there are and cats that there are and fish and snakes and all sorts of things so why would we think that okay there's like two kinds of angels like that doesn't follow that's not that's not the way that god created the world he created the world with so many different types of things in it. Why would we think that under the umbrella of angels, there's basically regular angels and archangels? And we do see support for this idea that there's lots of different types of angels with all these different terms that are used. Now, do we have tons of detail about them? No, but we have more than what I used to think that we knew about them. Uh, Colossians 2.15 says, He disarmed rulers and authorities and put them to open shame by triumphing over them in him. Ephesians 6.12, For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against cosmic powers over this present darkness, against spiritual forces of evil in heavenly places. Ephesians 3.10, So that through the church, the manifold wisdom of God might now be made known to the rulers and authorities in the heavenly places. Uh, Romans 8.38 and 39 says, I am sure that neither death nor life 
nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Another term for angels is holy ones. Uh, This term is found more in the Old Testament, and its reference in the New Testament is a reference in the New Testament to something from the Old Testament. So we have texts in Deuteronomy 33, Psalm 89, Zechariah 14, and then Jude. Um, Let's read Psalm 89, 5. Let the heavens praise your wonders, O Lord, your faithfulness in the assembly of the holy ones. Verse 7 of the same chapter. A God greatly to be feared in the council of the holy ones and awesome above all who are around him. This reference in Psalm 89 to the council of the holy ones is a thing that is almost completely not talked about in in our type of circles, but there's a scholar named Michael Heiser who has almost single-handedly pulled this topic out of academia and put it into the mainstream circles, and that is this idea of a divine council, which is what he believes and a lot of biblical scholars believe is being referenced when the Bible speaks about the council. And when it speaks of, uh, in Job chapter 1, when uh, the the sons of God came to present themselves to the Lord, uh, what was that? Well, that's God meeting with or the the Trinity, meeting with all of these spirit beings, angels and demons alike. Uh, There's also reference to it in, I think, first or second Kings, where um, the Lord says, all right, who's going to, I need a lying spirit to go deceive King Ahab or somebody. Um, And then they're volunteering basically, oh, I'll do it. I'll I'll deceive him. Uh, That's a reference, I believe, to this council. Zechariah 14.5 says, You shall flee to the valley of my mountains, for the valley of the mountains shall reach to Azal, and you shall flee as you fled from the earthquake in the days of Uzziah, king of Judah. Then the Lord my God will come with all the holy ones with him. And then Jude 14 says, It was, it was also about these that Enoch, the seventh from Adam, prophesied, saying, Behold, the Lord comes with ten thousands of his holy ones. Next, heavenly beings. Heavenly beings. Psalm 8.5 says, Yet you have made him a little lower than the heavenly beings and crowned him with glory and honor. Speaking of humanity. Psalm 29.1. Ascribe to the Lord, O heavenly beings, ascribe to the Lord glory and strength. Um, Next, living creatures. This is a very long section from Ezekiel chapter 1. I'll read a little bit of it. And from the midst of it came the likeness of four living creatures. And this was their appearance. They had a human likeness, and each had four faces, and each of them had four wings. Their legs were straight, the soles of their feet were like the soles of a calf's foot, and they sparkled like burnished bronze. Under their wings, on their four sides, they had human hands, and the four had their faces and their wings thus. Their wings touched one another. Each one of them went straight forward without turning as they went." And as for the likeness of their faces, each had a human face. The four had a face of a lion on the right side. The four had the face of an ox on the left side. The four had the face of an eagle. Such were their faces, and their wings were spread out above. Each each creature had two wings, each of which touched the wing of another, while two covered their bodies, and each went straight forward. Wherever the spirit would go, they went, without turning as they went. 
As for the likeness of the living creatures, their appearance was like burning coals of fire, like the appearance of torches moving to and fro among the living creatures. And the fire was bright, and out of the fire went forth lightning. And the living creatures darted to and fro, like the appearance of a flash of lightning. Now as I looked at the living creatures, I saw a wheel on the earth beside the living creatures, one for each of the four of them. As for the appearance of the wheels and their construction, their appearance was like the gleam of beryl. The four had the same likeness, their appearance and construction being as it were a wheel within a wheel. I will pause there. There's another 10 plus verses to go. The point I want to make right now is the reference a few moments ago about the diversity of types of things that God has made in creation. We see the diversity of the angelic beings here in this vision. Uh, That same vision from Ezekiel, Ezekiel chapter 1, is, uh, I believe, referenced again in Revelation chapter 4, verse 6 and following. Around the throne, on each side of the throne, are four living creatures, full of eyes in front and behind. The first living creature like a lion, the second like an ox, the third with the face of a man, and the four living creatures like an eagle in flight. The fourth, like an eagle in flight. And the four living creatures, each of them with six wings, are full of eyes all around and within, and day and night. They never cease to say, holy, holy, holy is the Lord God Almighty, who was and is and is to come. And whenever the living creatures give glory and honor and thanks to him who is seated on the throne, who lives forever and ever. What are we talking about right now? Right now we're talking about this category that is called living creatures. Probably the safest description for the writers of scripture, because how how are you going to describe a being like this that is nearly indescribable? After this, we have seraphim. Isaiah 6, verse 2, Above him stood the seraphim, each had six wings. With two he covered his face, with two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And the one called to another and said, Holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory, and the foundations of the threshold shook at the voice of him who called. And the house was filled with smoke. And I said, Woe is me, for I am lost. For I am a man of unclean lips, and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips. For my eyes have seen the King, the Lord of hosts. Then one of the seraphim flew to me, having in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar. And he touched my mouth and he said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. Angels are, some angels are also called sons of God. Job chapter 1, we referenced that a few moments ago. Now there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord. And Satan also came among them. Job 2.1 says, again, there was a day when the sons of God came to present themselves before the Lord, and Satan also came among them to present himself before the Lord. Job 38, verse 7, when the morning stars sang together and all the sons of God shouted for joy. So this is a thing, and it's referring to angelic beings. The Bible also refers to them as spirits. Uh, 1 John 4, 1 through 3. Uh, elemental spirits, Colossians 2, ministering spirits, Hebrews 1.14, are they not all ministering spirits sent out to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation? When you think of angels, do you think of beings that God has created in order to serve? Or do you just think of them as floating around, either visible or invisible? Their purpose is to serve. The purpose for angels' existence is to serve, which is the word ministering, ministering spirits. 
And they don't just serve in general, but these serve for the sake of those who are to, who are to inherit salvation. What that means is they serve Christians. Now, if you're like me, you probably don't think about that very much. That's not really a thing in your mind. You're just kind of going about your way as if you live in a naturalist universe. And there are no angels, there are no demons, nothing invisible exists except God, but we have the Bible, so that's we can see God there. Um, instead of recognizing, no, there is a spiritual realm and angels actually exist for the sake of serving Christians. Uh, I'm not sure if I have a reference to this because this, these lists of um, names I pulled from my notes, which I alluded to at the beginning. But beyond this, there is also a very biblical thing, which I think we don't usually think is biblical, and that is the idea of guardian angels. Sure, the, the term guardian angel isn't in that way, um, described or, or mentioned in scripture, but the idea of God giving certain angels charge over certain people to keep you from dashing your foot against a rock, that is in the Bible. And that's what we would call a guardian angel. Now, does that mean you have one particular angel that flies around chasing Trenton, for example, to make sure that Trenton doesn't get killed out front of Planned Parenthood? Is it one or is it like the angel of the day? You know, it's, it's a new one each day. And they're just like, okay, well, it's my turn to go to Planned Parenthood today. Yippee. And then the other one's like, well, I get to go to prayer meeting tonight. And, you know, they're, they're taking turns and, sw- and switching up their roles. I have no idea. I don't know how these things work because we don't have this type of detail given to us. But what we do know is that angels exist to serve for the sake of those who are to inherit salvation. Now, you do not pray to angels. You do not say, all right, guardian angel, I could use some help right now. No, you don't do that. You pray to God. You ask God for help, and he'll sort out how he's going to make that happen. And you can trust him to know what's best. Uh, There's also reference to seven spirits in the book of Revelation. Uh, Revelation 1, 4, 3, 1, 4, 5, and 5, 6. Um, in 2 Kings 6, there's a reference without really a proper label or term, but um, Elisha says, he said, do not be afraid for those who are with us are more than those who are with them. Then Elisha prayed and said, O Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. So what's happening in this story is Elisha is with this seminary student, basically, this this young man from the school of the prophets, and they're in this scary situation, and the guy's afraid, and Elisha's like, why are you afraid? Like, we're surrounded by angels. Like, they're here to protect us. And the guy's like, oh, no, I'm afraid. And so then Elisha says, Lord, please open his eyes that he may see. So then the Lord enables this man to see the heavenly realm, to see the angelic realm of these Angels that do exist already, they're already there, but now he can see them and suddenly his fears are calmed because he recognizes there are more people, more angels for them than for the enemy. Um, Another term is watchers. That one's kind of creepy. 
This one has sort of risen in popularity to talk about sort of in the, the, the podcast world lately. Um, there's not much description given, but it does show up in Daniel chapter 4. Um, I think it occurs like three times in the chapter. Uh, pull it up. Sometimes I get up here and start talking and my brain just stops working. I can't remember what I'm trying to say or the books of the Bible or the order of anything or my references, even though they're written in front of me. And it just, weird things happen sometimes. But Daniel chapter 4, verse 17 says, The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men. Um, I think there's also a reference... Four twenty-five and four thirty-two. You shall drive; uh, they shall drive you from men. Your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall. Oh no, that's. Oh, is it? Yeah, it is. Uh, they shall make you eat grass like oxen. They shall wet you with the dew of heaven, and seven times shall pass over you, uh, till you know that the Most High rules in the kingdom of men and gives to them whoever He chooses. It's not the reference I was hoping for. Um, Verse 32 is also not what I was hoping for. Um, Nevertheless, there are other references. Uh, And watchers are these angels that are watching. And it sounds kind of creepy. Beyond these categories of angels, there are also named angels. Uh, Michael the archangel, Jude 9 and uh, Jude. 9 and 10 speaks of this. But when the angel Michael, contending with the devil, was disputing about the body of Moses, he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment, but said, the Lord rebuke you. But these people blaspheme all that they do not understand, and they are destroyed by all that they, like unreasoning animals, understand instinctively. Um, While we're right here looking at this verse, in terms of casting out demons... A lot of times people in charismatic circles will say, I rebuke you. I rebuke you, Satan. I bind you, Satan. Um, any of these types of statements, they, start, they usually start with the word I or we. We rebuke you. Um, we don't have that authority. We don't have that power. Um, we're much weaker and smaller and less powerful than uh, angels or demons. And our text here, Jude 9 and 10, says he did not presume to pronounce a blasphemous judgment. So actually, it's blasphemy to to think that you can do that, that you have that sort of power. Well, why is that blasphemy? Because only the Lord has that type of power. So instead, he says, the Lord rebuke you. And that's Michael the archangel saying that as he's fighting with the devil over the body of Moses. This is a reference, I believe, to the book of Enoch. And the book of Enoch is not canon. It's not what we would consider scripture. But we do believe that it contains true things. 
And there's this story of what happened to Moses, what happened to Moses' body when he dies on uh, the top of Mount Sinai. And this is referenced here in Jude 9 and 10 as a reference from the book of Enoch. Uh, Revelation 12, Daniel 10, uh, Daniel 12 also speak of Michael. Daniel 12, 1 says, at that time shall arise Michael, the great prince who's, who has charge of your people. And there shall be a time of trouble, such as never been since there was a nation till that time. But at that time, your people shall be delivered, everyone whose name shall be found written in the book. Um, looking back at Daniel 10. I like this one. It's very, very interesting. Daniel 10, 10. And behold, a hand touched me and set me trembling on my hands and knees. And he said, O Daniel, man greatly loved, understand the words that I speak to you and stand upright. For now I have been sent to you. And when he had spoken this word to me, I stood up trembling. Then he said to me, fear not, Daniel. For from the first day that you set your heart to understand and humbled yourself before your God, your words have been heard. Daniel had been praying. He'd been praying for a particular answer from the Lord. And this person says, and I have come because of your words. I've come to you because of your prayer. Verse 13, the prince of the kingdom of Persia withstood me 21 days, but Michael, one of the chief princes came to help me for I was left there with the kings of Persia and came to make you understand what is to happen to your people in the latter days for the vision is for days yet to come. This text is fascinating. Um, there's a lot of things to talk about in it, and we'll mention a couple of them. Um, the idea of what in demonology they call um, territorial spirits. I didn't used to think that was a thing. I was like, no, that's, I'm not a charismatic. I don't believe in territorial spirits. But if you read a little more closely, you find that there is such thing as the prince of the kingdom of Persia who withstood this angel for three weeks, a particular demon who is the demon over Persia is fighting with this guy for three weeks, like, like two football players going at it, trying to stop the other from getting through because Daniel is praying for three weeks and the Lord has sent this angel from the throne room of heaven to go appear to Daniel to answer him and to help him. And then this demon is like, no, 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 I'm going to stop that from happening. And so they're effectively wrestling for three weeks. And the one that's doing that, the one that's trying to stop this from happening is the particular demon that is over that area. And if you don't believe me, just read it and reread it and read different translations until it's a little more clear in your mind. But this, I'm reading from the ESV and I think it's plenty clear enough. So this angel that appears to Daniel is saying that this demon, the prince of the kingdom of Persia, withstood me for 21 days. But Michael, one of the archangels, came as my backup to help me. For I was left there with the kings of Persia. So basically, Michael shows up and starts fighting the guy and says, all right, you can make a run for it. I've got him. So then Michael continues fighting with him while this angel who's been sent to go actually do something besides fight, but to go appear to Daniel 
Well, now he's able to appear to Daniel because Michael is now fighting in his place. So, um, do you think that there are particular demons over New York? I think there are. And, and the, the demons of the subways. <laughs> and the, demon, the demons of Manhattan are a little different from the demons of Queens and the demons of Brooklyn and the demons of the Bronx. And, uh, <laughs> and we've already talked about how many there are. We know there's lots and lots of them. So, so there's demons, the subway demons and the bus demons and the, uh, the, the, cat, the taxi demons. <laughs> and today, the, the crane demons. Um, beyond Michael, there's also Gabriel. Daniel chapter 8 says, uh, verse 15, when I, Daniel, had seen the vision, I sought to understand it. And behold, there stood before me one having the appearance of a man. And I heard a man's voice between the banks of Eli, and it called Gabriel, Gabriel, um, Gabriel, make this man understand the vision. So he came near where I stood, and when he came, I was frightened and fell on my face. But he said to me, Understand, O son of man, that the vision is for the time of the end. Uh, The next chapter, Daniel 9, verse 20. When I was speaking and praying, confessing my sin and the sins of my people Israel, and presenting my plea before the Lord my God for uh, for the holy hill of my God, while I was speaking in prayer, the man Gabriel, whom I had seen in the vision at the first, came to me in swift flight at the time of the evening sacrifice. He made me understand, speaking with me and saying, O Daniel, I have now come out to give you insight and understanding. At the beginning of your pleas for mercy, a word went out. So you started praying and a word went out in this divine council among the angels and demons in the spiritual realm. A word went out when you started praying. And I have come to tell it to you, for you are greatly loved. Therefore, consider the word and understand the vision. I don't know about you, but I find this whole thing very compelling. I find it just astounding that prayers actually impact things that are happening in the spiritual realm. And the language here of the book of Daniel is that when you started praying, stuff started happening. And for three weeks, there was a fight between an angel and a demon. All the while, Daniel kept praying. I think oftentimes we give up praying before the answer arrives. Uh, Luke chapter 1 also references Gabriel. The angel answered, I am Gabriel. I stand in the presence of God. And I was sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And behold, you will be silent and unable to speak until the day that these things take place because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in this time. In the sixth month, the angel Gabriel was sent from God to a city of Galilee named Nazareth to a virgin betrothed to a man whose name was Joseph, the house of David, and the virgin's name was Mary. By the way, there's a great deal of continuity from Old Testament to New Testament about these angels and demons. Um, After these angels, let's speak for a word about the angel of the Lord. There is a particular angel, a particular messenger referenced in the Old Testament that is called the angel of the Lord. It's not just an angel, but it is the angel, and it is the angel of the Lord. And it is described in unique ways. I wish I had a whole like 
lecture on this, but I don't. Um, the angel of the Lord is more than just an angel. It is divine. It has certain authority, and it, is, it receives worship, for example, uh, in ways that angels are not allowed to. And so we believe that this angel, the angel of the Lord, is actually the second person of the Trinity, and that when the angel of the Lord appears, it's what we would call a theophany or a Christophany, which is an appearance of God or an appearance of the pre-incarnate Christ, the pre-incarnate Logos, the, the pre-incarnate Son of God. And that's what's actually taking place. So if you ever get uh, into a very unpleasant conversation with someone who is in a cult, who's talking to you about how Jesus isn't really equal with the Father because here, look, he's called the angel of the Lord, and that's less than or different from or in some other way. They're, they're trying to do like a gotcha sort of situation. Just don't tolerate that nonsense at all. Um, I want you to have heard about it already, to know that the angel of the Lord is God the Son in his pre-incarnate form. This moves us then into point number two. So point number one is Holy Spirits, then we spoke about the Holy Spirit, and then angels, and then uh, the angel of the Lord. Now we're speaking about evil spirits. This is the fun part. So we have, first off, Satan. If on the Holy Spirit's side we start off with the Holy Spirit, uh, we should talk first here about Satan. Not that Satan and the Holy Spirit are equal opposites. Uh, they're not any more than Satan is the equal opposite to Jesus, which he is not. They are in separate categories. They are different um, of different nature and essence and being. The equal opposite of Satan would be either Michael or Gabriel. The one that actually is the counter to Satan would be whoever the top good angel is. Uh, the category of angels, I didn't mention this in my notes, but you need to know just for the sake of knowing, um, angels, as far as categories, would, are, are considered in academic language, they're, they're called the excluded middle. So the excluded middle is this category between God and man, this category that we often ignore. Uh, so we have Satan. Satan, the former choir director in heaven, and his fall is listed or described in Ezekiel 28, um, also somewhere in Isaiah, and then Luke 10, 18 and 19. So, um, again, biblical studies is, is very, it's a, it's a very dangerous field. That's a reason why they call seminary cemetery, because uh, it's a place where your faith goes to die, because uh, most seminaries are completely apostate. Like, if you were just to, to make a, a list on an Excel spreadsheet of every seminary in the country, well over 90% of them are not even Christian, even though they're seminaries. Uh, their professors are not believers. Um, and so then you have to narrow this down and say, okay, out of all the seminaries, we're going to ignore the ones that are non-evangelical. So you get rid of hundreds of them, and now you're left with the evangelical ones. And then out of that, you have to deal with how many of these evangelical seminaries have professors who do not believe their own statement of faith, like the school statement of faith, particularly related to inerrancy? Do you believe the Bible is true or not? Uh, so lots of very, very prominent seminaries, uh, including like Houston Baptist 
university, which has a seminary attached to it. Uh, that and plenty of other schools, which are considered evangelical or Baptist or Southern Baptist or whatever, they have professors teaching there who actually deny inerrancy. So in the classroom, they'll be like, oh yeah, you see it? I know it says that, but that's actually wrong. So this is mainstream. This happens at um, evangelical colleges and seminaries. And one of the things that they do is, um, in the name of scholarship, they, are, they, they make up new ideas. Part of this is tied to the academic process, which is, in order to get a PhD, you have to come up with something new. You have to write a paper of two to 300 pages on something that has never been written on before. And as they say, if it's new, it's not true. So you're going to think thoughts that have never been thought before and in some way still come out on the other side of it still believing. So what more solid professors will do if they're just trying to, like, trying to help their student come out for the better on the other side, they'll say, okay, I want you to do your dissertation refuting someone else's dissertation that is on this new novel concept. So he wrote his new paper on this, came out as an atheist. I want you to write your dissertation defending the classic position against this new novel position. So um, one of my friends who was a professor at Southern, he told me, like, yeah, that's, that's the way to do it. That's the, it's the easiest way for us as academics to do it as well because we're not having to come up with some new thing. We'll just, write, we'll just have our guy write a paper refuting someone else's new thing. Anyway, back to our story. The fall of Satan. One of the things that people come up with in their quest for novelty is to say that Ezekiel 28 is not a reference to the fall of Satan. Because look, the first 10 verses, it's about the king of Tyre. That's not Satan. This is an evolutionary product of ancient mythology and it's nonsense. We know this because Luke 10 tells us that Ezekiel 28 is talking about Satan. So the Bible sometimes gives us clues to help us with our interpretation by, by referencing itself. So you don't actually need to be smarter than God. You can just read what he told us. And stick with his explanation that he gave. Um, Satan's other name is Lucifer. I mean, he's got a bunch of names. Uh, he's also called a roaring lion, seeking whom he may devour. If you've not been to a zoo lately, um, lions, when they're awake, um, they like to pace back and forth in front of the glass, looking at the small children that are standing there in front of the glass, because the lions are looking for something to devour. That's what they do. They have to, it takes a lot of meat to keep a lion satisfied. They have to eat a lot per day. So too, Satan is a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Satan is also the accuser of the brethren. And he is the adversary. He's called a murderer from the beginning. He's also disguised as an angel of light. So he doesn't always look scary. He doesn't always look intimidating. Sometimes he looks really nice and really friendly and looks like everything you ever hoped for. The Bible calls him the prince of the power of the air. 
that there is a very real sense in which Satan has dominion and authority over this earth. That's, by the way, that's one of the biggest reasons why I don't hold to amillennialism. Because to be amill means that we're in the millennium right now, which for that to be the case means that Satan is bound right now. And if Satan was bound right now, why is there whatever's going on between Ukraine and Russia, uh, whatever's going on in the United States, the massive decline of the churches, uh, just enormous apostasy, the whole thing I just talked about, seminaries, like 90 plus percent of them being completely apostate. If Satan was bound right now, who's authoring all this false teaching? The Bible says Satan is the author of the father of lies. If he's bound, why are there new lies being invented all the time by PhD students trying to be novel and new? Anyway, the God of this world, he's also called the father of lies or the author of false doctrine. Now, that's Satan. There's much more that could be said about him, but oh, by the way, he is not um, omnipresent. He's only in one place at one time. So he goes roaming around this earth, as uh, Job chapter 1 tells us. So he's not everywhere all the time. He's only in one place at one time. Um, After that, we have demons. Let's talk about demons. Uh, The source of demons. Where did demons come from? Well, they're fallen angels who participated in the fall of Satan. So Satan rebels against God, and so a third of the angels in heaven go with them. They rebel too. They're like, yeah, we're, we're, we're part of your team now. Um, beyond that, there's a lot more going on. There's a lot more demons to be uh, developed and created. Genesis 6 is one of the fun texts on this. Let's go there. Um, verse 4, there were also giants on the earth in those days and also afterward when the sons of God came into the daughters of men and they bore children to them. These were the mighty men who were of old, men of renown. Uh, The word used there in Hebrew is the word Nephilim. Um, The word Nephilim is this reference to giants. There's a bunch of other words as well used in the Old Testament. Uh, You need to read Doug Van Dorn's book called Giants, the Sons of the Gods. And he does this whole in-depth study on all these different terms. Beyond just Nephilim, there's also Anakim and others. Um, But this situation that's happening, these sons of God, these are these beings that are the same type of sons of gods that are of, of God that are referenced in these other texts, which I read to you a few minutes ago. Um, the idea is that um, there is this human demon hybrid thing, cre- uh, creature that is produced through demons having intercourse with humans. Now, how does that work? We don't know. We're not given the details. It's not explained to us. Um, but um, that's the source of the Nephilim. And then the Nephilim are described throughout the Old Testament in lots of other places, uh, such as the book of Joshua. And you see them keep appearing. Uh, this, this wickedness that is great 
on the earth is um, really, really bad. Um, you have these demonized giants that are brutal and barbaric and they're cannibals and they're doing all the kinds of things described in the book of Joshua. And so that's why God floods the earth, destroys all of the world. But then these demons reappear. They appear after the flood. That's what it says right here in Genesis 6, 4. How does that work? We don't really know. Um, there's various theories such as um, that they were, um, they had basically Nephilim DNA that's being passed down from generation to generation. And that included in the spouses of Noah's kids. So Noah's sons are married to these women who have Nephilim DNA. And then therefore um, this whole problem sparks up again after the flood. Uh, I don't know, but read Doug Van Doren's book on it and you will have just a great time. I recommend his book the most because he's, he's a conservative Reformed Baptist who's 1689. Like the man has his seatbelt on. He's not crazy. He's not bouncing off the walls, charismatic. Um, if you want something that's a little edgier, you can read Michael Heiser's book called The Unseen Realm. But Michael Heiser, Heiser's an Arminian, more charismatic, but he and Doug Van Dorn are friends and we're friends and they um, did a lot of work together on these topics. Um, beyond this, we have the Watchers, which I re uh, referenced earlier from Daniel 4. Oh, the other verses. Daniel 4, 13, 4, 17, and 4, 23. Uh, that's where the Watchers are referenced. And then the Territorial Spirits, which I read about earlier, Daniel 10. And um, other words for demons, you've got carved images or idols, uh, Deuteronomy 7, Psalm 106, 1 Corinthians 10, uh, Acts 7, um, Revelation 9. There are deceitful spirits, lying spirits. 1 Timothy 4, 1 through 2. Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and teachings of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. Um, next is the word demons. Mark 1, 32 through 34. Um, Galatians 4 talks about elementary, elementary principles. In the same way, we also, when we were children, were enslaved to the elementary principles of this world. Uh, the term evil spirits is used in Judges 9 and Matthew 10. Um, Leviticus 17 references goat demons. Um, so they shall no more sacrifice their sacrifices to goat demons after whom they whore. This shall be a statute forever for them throughout their generations. Uh, the word gods, lowercase g, is used to refer to demons. Although demons are not gods, since they, there's only one god, they are referenced and associated with the false worship of gods. By the way, this is why when we speak in terms of who is God, we talk about his attributes, we talk about his character, and what's one of the first attributes that we raise? It's the holiness of God, which doesn't simply mean his sinlessness, it means his uniqueness, it means his differentness, how he is different from all the other gods, all the other spiritual beings. None can compare to Yahweh. In the spiritual realm, there is none like our God, the God of Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. He is unique, he is holy, he is set apart, he is different. Um, other references on that. Another term is harmful spirit. Uh, Saul and the witch of Endor. 
is a fun reference from 1 Samuel 16, uh, verse 14 through 16. Now the spirit of the Lord departed from Saul and a harmful spirit from the Lord tormented him. Again, I think this is a reference to the divine counsel situation. You've got both good and bad um, angels or uh, spirits there. Saul's servant said to him, Behold now, a harmful spirit from God is tormenting you. Let our Lord now command your servants who are before you to seek out a man who is skillful in playing the lyre. Sorry, this is not the Witch of Endor story, but when the harmful spirit from God is upon you, he will play it and you will be well. Uh, verse 23 says, Whenever the harmful spirit from God was upon Saul, David took the lyre and played it with his hand. So Saul was refreshed and was well, and the harmful spirit departed from him. Uh, host of heaven, Second Chronicles 33 speaks of that. Um, host of heaven is a military term. Uh, I have 13 verses here on this. Um, 2 Kings 21.3, he rebuilt the high places that Hezekiah, his father, had destroyed, and he erected altars for Baal and made an Asherah as Ahab, king of Israel, had done, and worshipped all the hosts of heaven and served them, worshipping demons. Um, the lying spirit, 2 Chronicles 18, verse 19 through following, and Micaiah said, therefore, hear the word of the Lord. I saw the Lord sitting on his throne and all the hosts of heaven standing on his right hand and on his left. And the Lord said, who will entice Ahab, the king of Israel, that he may go up and fall at Ramoth Gilead? And one said one thing and another said another. Then a spirit came forward and stood before the Lord saying, I will entice him. And the Lord said to him, by what means? And he said, I will go out and will be a lying spirit in the mouth of all his prophets. And he said, you are to entice him, and you shall succeed. Go out and do so. Now, therefore, behold, the Lord has put a lying spirit in the mouth of these, your prophets. The Lord has declared disaster concerning you. Um, John eight forty four says, You are of your father the devil. Your will is to do your father's desires. He was a murderer from the beginning and does not stand in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he lies, he speaks out of his own character, for he is a liar and the father of lies. So in the story of Ahab, which I just read a moment ago, um, God is not creating a lying spirit in this. He's looking around saying, all right, which, I need a small liar. <laughs> I need someone who's going to come and step forward and lie. Which one of you will it be? They're lying out of their own will. Uh, Job 4, 12, uh, now word was brought to me stealthily. My ear received the whisper of it amid thoughts from visions of the night. When deep sleep falls on men, dread came upon me and trembling, which made all my bones shake. A spirit glided past my face and the hair of my flesh stood up. It stood still, but I could not discern its appearance. A form was before my eyes. There was silence. Then I heard a voice. Can mortal man be right before God? Can a man be pure before his maker? Even in his servants, he puts no trust. In his angels, he charges with error. How much more those who dwell in houses of clay? Um, oh, that's for the term spirit. Uh, then there's also spirit of the Antichrist or spirit of error, 1 John 4. 
Beloved, do not believe every spirit, but test the spirits to see whether they are from God. For many false prophets have gone out into the world. By this, you know the spirit of God. Every spirit that confesses that Jesus Christ has come in the flesh is from God. And every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you heard was coming and now is in the world already. Little children, you are from God and have overcome them. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. They are from the world. Therefore, they speak from the world and the world listens to them. We are from God. Whoever knows God listens to us. Whoever is not from God does not listen to us. By this, we know the spirit of truth and the spirit of error. Notice the binary in that. You've got two options. Spirit of truth and spirit of error. Uh, spirit of divination, Acts 16, 16. As we were going to the place of prayer, we were met by a slave girl who had the spirit of divination brought and brought her owners much gain by fortune telling. She followed Paul and us, crying out, These men are servants of the Most High God who proclaim to you the way of salvation. This she kept doing for many days. Paul, having become greatly annoyed, turned and said to the spirit, I command you in the name of Jesus Christ to come out of her. And I came out that very hour. Um, if you, were, my notes don't have this, but if, if you're more open to the type of language that I think is typically associated with charismatics, it's, it, I don't think it should be. I just think it's scriptural. Um, then your list of spirit of blank will have a lot more words on it. So we have spirit of the antichrist listed right here, but there's also spirit of fear. We typically think of, well, God has not given us a spirit of fear as an attitude of fear. God hasn't given us an attitude of fear, but, a, but an attitude of power and love and sound mind. But if you're taking like that phrase the same kind of way that the spirit of the antichrist is taken as like, no, this is a spiritual being that does certain things, well, there's a spirit of fear uh, I th that makes sense to me. I don't, I don't see why that would not be um, out of the multitude of types of angels and demons that exist, that there would not be demons of fear, um, as well as other ones like the spirit of Jezebel and plenty of others, which I'm not sure why, but Dr. Carl did not include those here on this list, I think. He wanted to be allowed to continue to teach the class. <laughs> That's a joke. He, I don't think he's still teaching. I think he only taught the one time as a sub to fill in for someone. Uh, unclean spirit is another term that's used. There's multiple references for that. And then he also references the, the sons of God and the Nephilim. So let's go to our slides. Here we are. Possession. So what do demons do? Well, demons, they do a lot of things. We've read some of it, but... For our purposes, uh, demons possess, they oppress, and demonize. The word demonize is um, more popular in um, academic literature because they, they're not really interested in cutting hairs between uh, possession and oppression because someone who is oppressed and someone who is possessed might look very similar. So they just say, well, it's a demonized man. Um, what causes that? What causes someone to be demon-possessed, demon-oppressed, or just demonized in general? Well, there's a couple things. One is that we are, by nature, um, born as enemies of God and children of the devil. So we start out that way, but then we also have the option to get worse from there. Um, 
And where that comes in is by giving place to the devil. So this term, give no place to the devil, from Ephesians, that word place is a spatial term. Think of a house. Where is your place that you eat lunch? Where's the place where you keep your books? Or the place where you sleep? The idea being communicated here is that we have options, basically. The options are to give the devil more place or give the devil less place. So visualize a house or visualize a five-story walk-up building. So on the ground floor, the front and the back unit have been given over to the devil. The second floor have not. But then the residents say, you know what, we want to give these floor, we want to, we want to give this floor to the devil. And then this whole situation just keeps on moving, and so Satan is taking more and more ground. Um, people do that in their own lives. They give over more and more of their life to the devil. Now, how does that happen? Well, I don't want to give you a manual for how to be demonized, but um, by all accounts and all the studying I've done on this is that one of the simplest ways to make this happen is through altered states of consciousness, namely drugs. And so when your mind is in an altered state of consciousness, when you are not filled with the spirit, but you are drunk with wine, for example, your mind is, is more open to the spirit realm. And so I've been told by people who are like, oh, you know, I just really feel like I connect with God better when I do drugs. Literally, I've, people told me that. And I believe them in part. Yeah, they're connecting with something. They're communing with the spirit realm when they're high. And I, I have not done a lot of drugs in my life. Um, but when I, was, when I had my wisdom teeth taken out, they gave me some really intense pain, med- pain medication, which I'm told could sell for a lot of money on the street. And when I was high as a kite on my oxys, I felt like I was on another planet. Like, the things I saw, I have never seen before. The places I went, I have never been before. Even though I was lying there on the couch <laughs> and the room was spinning. Thankfully, I didn't see anything that seemed demonic. I just saw things that looked like pictures of outer space, you know, with like swirling, spinning things that might maybe came from the book of Ezekiel. I don't know. Wheels within wheels and gleaming lights and all sorts of things. But when you do drugs recreationally, you're altering your state of consciousness, and then perhaps you're doing drugs, and then you're also participating in illicit sex and all sorts of wild activities, these are the actions that every scholar on demonology will tell you, that's the way to get demonized. Why then is it a surprise to any of us that when we see people wandering around New York City that are, we would just call them crazy, 
And they've got needles dangling out of their arms. And they're screaming and lunging at people and attacking people. And quite literally acting like they're demon-possessed. Why are we at all surprised by that? This is the method to get demonized. Now, moving on from demonization and just taking a few steps back to merely oppression. uh, Well, let's go back a little further to possession. Can a Christian be demon-possessed? They cannot be. They cannot be demon-possessed because they're possessed by God. They're indwelt by the Holy Spirit. But they can certainly be oppressed. They can be afflicted. Now, there's a difference between being owned and being afflicted. Um, Hopefully, you can understand that, but let's just think of an employee-employer situation. Let's pretend as though your employer owns you. Um, The the harm that they can cause you in that employee in that relationship is very different from the harm that a customer can cause you. That customer that, that let's say you are working at a at Target, you're a cashier, you have a horrible manager and they make your life miserable every single day. I don't know if this ever happened to you, Michaela, but let's say you had a terrible manager. But then let's say, no, you had a good, you had a great manager. Your manager really looked out for you and stood up for you and made sure that you got paid properly and that you had everything like you're supposed to have it, but you had some terrible customers. And those customers came in to bother you, but it was different because they didn't control you. They don't own you. They don't have authority to dominate your life the way your manager does. Now, sure, they can come back every single day and bother you, and they can make themselves really quite a bother by continuing to bother you, but it's different. Versus the one who thinks that they own you. So there's quite a difference between possession and oppression, even though a very oppressive oppression can look a lot like possession. Um, But beyond that, we should just consider the concept of affliction. Can Satan or demons afflict Christians? I think the answer is very clearly, plainly, yes. Obviously, yes. Both Old Testament and New Testament. This is the story of Job. The godliest man on the planet at the time. And Satan comes to afflict him, to oppress him, to cause him harm. And he sure does. He did a lot of things to harm Job. In the New Testament, Paul is afflicted by a messenger of Satan, which is literally rendered an angel of Satan. An angel of Satan is a demon. Now, in our post-enlightenment world, we're like, oh, well, what is a a thorn in the flesh? So it was blindness. Or was a bad mother-in-law. I literally hear these types of jokes made in the seminary classroom, but the text says it was a demon. We'll come up with any other answer besides saying that it's something spiritual or supernatural that's happening. Now, is this night terrors? Is this demons appearing to him as he's just trying to function? I don't know. But nevertheless, whatever it is, is very oppressive. And beyond Paul, Jesus was afflicted by the devil. 
Satan literally came at Jesus and is harassing him, tempting him, lying to him. And Jesus resisted the devil. And he resisted the devil by the word of God. As we spoke about earlier, how to be filled with the Spirit. To be filled with the Spirit means being filled with the word of God. And that's the way that Jesus resisted. Um, Now, beyond possession, demonic possession, there are lots of other types of demonic things which we should not participate in. Uh, I listed here uh, witchcraft. Witchcraft is mentioned in the Old Testament, uh, also the New, and it appears in our world today, and Christians should have nothing to do with it. Um, Necromancy, the idea of communicating with the dead. Uh, You've heard of the Day of the Dead or whatever that is in Spanish. We don't do that. Oh, but it's part of my culture. I don't care. God says no. What part of no don't you understand? We don't try to talk to dead people. Fortune tellers, we don't, we don't do that either. We don't participate in voodoo or santeria. We don't participate in ancestor worship, which is ancestor worship is a little different from necromancy. Well, you say, oh, but my, you know, my ancestors are, from, my family, of, I'm from Africa and in the tribes in Africa, well, we, we, we worship our ancestors. We, we pray to them. We praise them. They have achieved sort of a, a deity type status. And that's just part of our culture. Well, I'll say the same thing to you that I said to the people who participate in Dia de los Muertos or something. Uh, yeah. We don't do that either. And then last and certainly not least, well, not last, but next is paranormal things. Paranormal. Do we have this? Yes. So we have aliens slash UFOs. Uh, I believe just up front here that aliens slash UFOs are demonic beings. And let's talk about the five kinds or close encounters. So close encounters. So this is a term coined by J. Allen Hynek, who was a UFOlogist. Um, so he, he put together this, this scale basically. So there's close encounters or demon, sorry, alien encounters of the first kind, which would be a visual sighting. So you see the aliens, uh, or visual sighting of an an unidentified flying object seemingly less than 500 feet away and show an appreciable angular extension and considerable detail. So not just like a super blurry image that you might see on your computer, but like you see it and you're like, whoa, that's really clear and it's not that far away. Like it's from here to the the corner, the stoplight. That's the first kind. Close encounters of the second kind is a UFO event in which a physical effect is alleged. This can be interference in a functioning of a vehicle or an electronic device or an animal that reacts to like you got your dog with you and your dog gets spooked and starts barking at this UFO. Uh, physiological effects such as paralysis or heat and discomfort in the witness or some physical trace like impressions in the ground, scorched or otherwise affected vegetation or a chemical trace. Uh, So that's close encounters of the second kind. Close encounters of the third kind is UFO encounters in which an animated entity is present. These include humanoids, robots, and humans who seem to be occupants or pilots of a UFO. For example... 
seeing an alien or something aboard the UFO, an entity is observed only inside the UFO. So like you're looking through the window of the thing and you're like, whoa, there's an alien looking at me. Um, or both, an entity is observed inside and outside the UFO, or close. An entity is observed near to the UFO, but not going into or out. Uh, there's direct. An entity is observed. No UFOs are seen by the observer, but the UFO activity has been reported in the area at about the same time. So you didn't see this, this, the spaceship, but you saw a little gray dude walking along, and then your friend who lives next door to you said, oh, I saw the spaceship. And you're like, oh, I didn't see the spaceship. I just saw the alien. Uh, excluded. An, ent- an entity is observed, but no UFOs are seen and no UFO activity has been reported in the area at the time. So you just see the alien, but you don't see the starship. And then frequency: No entity or UFOs are observed, but the subjects experience some sort of intelligent communication. So like frequencies, radio waves, stuff like that. So that's the third kind. And then the fourth kind a uh, close encounter of the fourth kind is a UFO event in which a human is abducted by a UFO or its occupant. I'm not sure where the cattle being abducted goes in, if a cattle abduction is the fourth kind or not, but there's some wild stories from farmers in Texas who are like, yeah, I've been doing this for 25 years and you know, I, I know what my cattle are like and I know how this works. I know what it looks like when one of my cattle is killed by wolves and this was not killed by a wolf. And it has like the most bizarre markings on it and cuts and all this. And then they look and there's like an impression on the ground, on the ground underneath the dead cow, where it's clear that this cow was dropped from a considerable height. And that's why it caused such, such a like cave in on the ground. And then as they go to investigate this animal, they cut it open and find it has no blood in it. And they'll find that it has these razor sharp, precise cuts on the body where like this thing was surgically operated on and then dropped and it has no blood. And these are farmers have these kind of stories. It's it's, there's a lot of them. Um, so I'm not sure if that's in the same category as human abductions, but that's the fourth kind. Uh, the fifth kind is a close encounter. Of the fifth kind refers to human initiated contact with extraterrestrial life forms or advanced interstellar civilization, claiming direct communication between aliens and humans. So, what that means is a UFO encounter that you initiate. You know, like you call your dog, you're like, come here, buddy. People are doing that with demons or with angels, uh, with aliens. Sorry. Same thing. <laughs> There's a documentary about this, and I watched it like five years ago, and it's called that title. I'm not recommending that you do so, but like this is a whole thing. And there's video footage of just like these people who decided that the way to make this happen is through practicing new age paganism at certain sites. And so they set up their lawn chairs and get their cameras set up. And then they start doing the things and lo and behold, stuff appears in the sky and there's footage of it. Hopefully that makes you uncomfortable. It made me uncomfortable. So anyway, we're, we're talking about paranormal things. So we got aliens next. Bigfoot. For whatever reason, I mean, Bigfoot, it, it truly belongs in the same category as these others. And then ghosts, and here's a fun one, The Giant of Kandahar. Uh, if you get the book Giants by Doug Van Dorn, in the back of it, he has this directory of giants that have been 
found and cited and logged throughout history. Uh, it's just like an Excel spreadsheet, basically, that was printed into the book. But w- the most recent one is this giant of Kandahar, which is like, I think, a 15-foot giant with red hair and six fingers and six toes on each foot, uh, hand and foot. And this giant was uh, encountered and killed during the war in Afghanistan, like in the last 20 years. And it's, it's wild. But if you talk to, talk to enough people, uh, particularly vets of the Afghanistan war, they'll tell you like, there's some weird stuff going on in the mountains of Afghanistan. Let's keep going because it's 909. Point three, application. How do you fight against the demonic? How do you fight against the demonic? Number one, church tradition. How have Christians fought against the demonic throughout the centuries? Now, for about a thousand years, the office of exorcist was a thing in the church. Like you got pastors and deacons and bishops and whatever. You also had exorcists. And that was just how things were uh, till the enlightenment, basically. Um, Dr. Carl's, from, from Dr. Carl's notes on his, his blog, he says, as... As the writings and experience of the early church fathers show, spiritual warfare has consistently revealed itself in history in both evangelism and discipleship. In surveying the history of the church, it is clear that certain aspects of spiritual warfare seem to not be emphasized. There is no apparent references to territorial spirits or strategic-level spiritual warfare. Rituals or formulaic prayers are seldom described or encouraged, and amulets are clearly discouraged. Ancestral spirits are only referenced in relation to a condemned heretical cult— dialoguing, naming, and human techniques are rarely discussed. So he's saying, don't, don't try and dialogue with demons. Don't try and figure out the names of the demons. Uh, the armor of God analogy as a, as a spiritual warfare metaphor and concept is consistently reinforced through the teachings and writings of the church fathers. Power in spiritual warfare is found through humility, prayer, the name of Christ, a truthful understanding of God, the word of God, and the word of God. Satan's attacks are seen on an individual level through deception, temptation, heresies, idol worship, false religion, sickness, and mental attacks. This is all in, in history. Like he's gone through and he has records of all the early church fathers and tons of people. Um, the devil also attacks the church corporately through heresy, division, and complacency. Uh, exorcism is mentioned and described in church history, leaving no room for doubt that numerous accounts of demonization and exorcism, as well as descriptions of the deceptive work of demons in pagan religions, fill the writings of the church fathers. Despite the attention given to exorcisms, believers are consistently referenced as not being possessed. When described, exorcisms appear to happen at the point of conversion, when there is found quote, clear amounts of initiatory rituals directed against evil spirits, period, close quote. By the way, in the early church, when a person would be converted, or early church, like first 500 years or so, when a person would come to Christ out of paganism, they weren't just baptized on the spot. They were, they got a a title, and their title was, you are now a catechumen, and so that is a person who is being catechized, so they're now learning, and so they're going to spend the next 12 months learning the catechism of the church, learning the teaching of the church. And during that process, they're having all these meetings with the church exorcist to get the demons out of them. 
So this whole, it's this like elongated process of conversion, basically. Now, I'm not saying it's right or wrong or otherwise. I'm just saying this is what happened. This is the way they did things. And then at the person's baptism, that's when their conversion was formally sealed or finalized or whatever. Like, okay, now this is a Christian. We're affirming this person. They're, they're getting dunked. They're saying Jesus is Lord. By the way, the early church dunked. The references in the, oh, what's it called? Can y'all think of the name? Do you remember the name of it? It's um, the Didache. Yeah, the Didache is this early church manual of how to do church. And it tells, like, here's the way you're supposed to baptize. Um, Where are we? Exorcism is mentioned and described in church history, leaving no room for doubt that numerous accounts of demonization, exorcism, as well as descriptions of the deceptive works of demons in pagan religions fill the writings of the church fathers. I already read that. Despite the attention given to exorcism, believers are consistently referred to as not being demon-possessed. When described, exorcism appears to happen at the point of conversion when there is found clear accounts of initiatory rituals directed against evil spirits. Demonic manifestations and apparitions are referenced. An apparition is a a vision, a seeing a demon or something. Um, But caution is given in regard to since deception can afford can occur in spiritual warfare. This is also part of why you should not pray to demons or angels. You should not ask, God, please send me an angel. Like, don't do that. Because the demons are listening too. And they could say, oh, well, let's send someone to look like an angel of light and we'll give you a particular message. And, and so don't follow those kinds of things and don't seek after them. Um, where are we? But caution is given in regard since deception can occur in spiritual warfare. Repentance, renunciation, and confession of all the previous sins were also seen as an important connection with baptism, either as an exorcistic or apotropic practice. I'm sure you all know what apotropic is, but I didn't, so I looked it up, and it means something having the power to avert evil influences or bad luck. So something used to get rid of evil things. Um, Early Christians' references to the demonic can be found in the writings of Justin Martyr, Theophilus of Antioch, Tertullian, Hippolytus, Origen, Athanasius, and many other early church fathers. Not only is spiritual warfare documented constantly through the whole time period of the ancient church, but spiritual warfare is also seen during the Middle Ages, the Reformation, and the early post-Reformation. Exorcism practices seem to diminish in the Middle Ages, but are still referenced among the Germanic tribes, Norwegians, Thomas Aquinas, Bonaventure, Martin Luther, the Catholic Church's 1614 Ritual Romanum, or Exorcism Guidelines, and other sources. The existence and activity of the devil and demons are widely evidenced and commonly believed across the history of the Church until the post-Enlightenment era. This survey of historical writings, characters, and confessions of the Christian church reinforces the importance of having a historical understanding of spiritual warfare. Power encounters, so when we say power encounters, we mean like something, I haven't seen it, but from what I gather, the movie The Exorcist, I assume, has like really dramatic exorcisms taking place, right? Has any any of you seen this? Like holy water and screaming and writhing with the guy strapped to the chair and stuff? That would be what we call a power encounter, Or imagine Elijah and the prophets of Baal. We're having a showdown between God and Baal, and we're going to have a power encounter. We're going to have a showing of divine power, and there's going to be a showdown, and the winner goes along their way, and the loser gets killed. That sort of thing. Um, Or in this case, the, the loser gets exercised, and the winner gets to go on their way. 
Um, so power encounters through exorcisms are mentioned throughout this church history. The greatest emphasis of early church writings is not on the power and responsibility of the priest or church leader, but on the power of Christ and the responsibility of the believer. Regardless of the frequency and consistency of spiritual warfare accounts in history, these experiences, teachings, and theologies must always be examined in light of Scripture. So, that's my point on church tradition. What does the Bible say? Well, here's how to fight against the demonic in very basic form. Number one, conversion slash regeneration, slash salvation, slash new birth. Ephesians 2, 1 through 9, has this great section, Galatians, Ephesians, here we are in Ephesians. Um, and you who were dead in your trespasses and sins, in which you once walked, following the course of this world, according to the prince of the power of the air, the spirit who now works in the sons of disobedience, among whom we also were all once, con- all once conducted ourselves in the lust of the flesh. Now, as we all used to be given over to the prince of the power of the air, to Satan, um, fulfilling the desires of the flesh and of the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, just as the others. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved, and raised us up together, and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us in Christ Jesus. For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest anyone should boast." So step number one to fight the devil and the demonic is salvation or conversion. Secondly, would be sanctification or conformity to Christ or the renewed mind. The more you are sanctified, the less influence that the demonic has over you. When you are not giving place to the devil, you're actually taking place back from the devil. You're saying, no, I'm taking that room too. Jesus, Jesus has that room as well. Jesus has every room in this house. It's all for him. He has every aspect of my life, from my head to my toes, all of my body, mind, soul, will, emotions, schedule, everything. It's all for Jesus. I'm not saying to go be a monk. I'm not saying you all have to leave your jobs and go to cemetery. I mean, seminary. No. But even in your working, in your eating and drinking, in your sports activities, in all the things that you do, the Christian is to do all to the glory of God. Um, Third, keep your heart with all diligence, for out of it flows the issues of life. I believe that's Proverbs 4.24. Guard your heart. Be aware of what's happening with the things that you take in, the music you listen to, the things you watch the messaging that is being communicated in the movies that you're watching. The social media accounts you follow, the influencers you sit under, the teachers that are filling your mind with teachings and ideas. If they're not teaching truth, they're teaching error. And if they're teaching error, that error comes from the father of lies. So give no place to the devil, Ephesians 427, 527. 
I don't know. Can you go to the next one? There we go. Uh, yeah, give no place to the devil. Um, next, submit yourselves to God. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So there are these two options. You, you submit to God, and as you're submitting to God, that's resisting the devil. And when you do that, the devil will flee from you. Next, put on the whole armor of God. Finally, my brethren, be strong in the Lord and in the power of his might. Put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the wiles of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against principalities, against powers, against rulers of the the darkness of this age, against spiritual hosts of wickedness in the heavenly places. Therefore, take up the whole armor of God that you may be able to withstand in the evil day. And having done all to stand, stand therefore, having girded your waist with truth, having put on the breastplate of righteousness, having shod your feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace, above all, taking the shield of faith with which you are able to quench all the fiery darts of the wicked one, and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit, which is the word of God, praying always with all prayer and supplication in the Spirit, being watchful to this end with all perseverance and supplication for all the saints. Supplication just requests. Um, And for me, the utterance may be given to me that I may open my mouth boldly to make known the mystery of the gospel. So the the armor of God. um, That was widely taught in these early church fathers. Like, How are you going to fight against the devil? Well, it's through the armor of God. Uh, Through prayer. Prayer to God, not to angels. Don't pray to angels. Revelation 22, 8 through 9 Angels specifically say, worship God. Don't fall down in front of angels. Don't worship them. Pray to God the Father in the name of the Son by the help of the Holy Spirit. And lastly, rest or trust wholly in the name of the Lord our God. Look to him for deliverance. That's the way you fight against the devil. Now, I believe we have recommended resources. So if you want to look up more of these notes and things from my professor, Dr. Jonathan Carl. You can go to his website, spiritualwarfare.blog, and you can find literally like the 92-page document from his lectures. And in the lectures, he started off with every day he would he would give us all these scenarios and say, all right, if you're in this place and this someone comes up to you and says, I experienced the following thing, and you know, my my cat started talking. And all the stories that he's telling us, these are things that, that, like, he has firsthand encounters with. Or, like, it wasn't the cat talking. It was the cat, like, started acting crazy and then, like, started bleeding from its paws, like the pads of its feet. And then, like, items in the house started moving and just freaky stuff. And, And I think all that came about because they brought back these idols from some, like, foreign mission trip they went on or something. And he was asking, what would you say to them? What should they do? Anyway, he's got all sorts of wild stories in his documents. If you want to flip through that, that's on spiritualwarfare.blog. Second, The Christian in Complete Armor by William Gurnall. By the way, these resources are very clickable for you on the app in some section of it. I think resources, like on the homepage, scroll all the way to the bottom, there's a resources tab. Click on that, and then they should be listed in uh, order of sequence. So the Bottom one should be Lesson 6, Spiritual Warfare Resources. So you click on that, and then it'll all this stuff will pop up. So, Christian and Complete Armor by William Gurnall, who is a, a Puritan author. That book is considered kind of the gold standard of spiritual warfare stuff. Um, 
Precious Remedies Against Satan's Devices by Thomas Brooks, again, Puritan author. Uh, Satan Cast Out, also from the Reformed Tradition by Frederick Leahy. Uh, then Giants, Sons of the Gods by Doug Van Dorn, who's a Reformed Baptist, still alive today. Um, the Holy Spirit by Sinclair Ferguson. Um, the Sovereign Spirit by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Joy Unspeakable by Martin Lloyd-Jones. I don't agree with absolutely everything, well, in any of these, but um, the Martin Lloyd-Jones books are notoriously controversial because of his views in them. But I think that there's a lot of good in it. And I think that it's particularly good for people such as us to have him push our buttons. Um, Next, The Gospel According to Satan by Jared Wilson. Jared Wilson these days is kind of woke. But I think reading this book would be good for you. Um... And last, well, not last, but last on this screen is Screw Tape Letters by C.S. Lewis. I do not like C.S. Lewis, okay? I just don't. I, I try not to recommend him, but that book has some incredible insights into it, the, the ways of the devil. Um, next, revival and revivalism. The work of the Holy Spirit. What is that? What is the spirit realm? Like, how, how does it, what does it look like when the Holy Spirit falls upon a place? Well, Revival and Revivalism by Ian Murray is, again, the gold standard on that topic of revival versus revivalism, which is the artificially contrived, created, fake revival. Um, Next, God's Indwelling Presence by Jim Hamilton, professor at Southern Seminary. That's going to be a more academic book about the Holy Spirit. Um, Then the next ones are also academic. Angels, Satans, and Demons. Angels, Satan, and Demons by Robert Leitner. We had to read that for the class. And then Understanding Spiritual Warfare, Four Views. Had to read that one as well. And then Powers of Darkness by Arnold. Had to read that for the class too. And then last, The Unseen Realm by Michael Heiser, which The Unseen Realm is similar to Doug Van Dorn's book, Giants, except it's broader and more all-encompassing and it's more charismatic and more Arminian. But nevertheless, you can see like... If you compare the two books, you'll understand sort of a range of perspectives on the Nephilim and all sorts of other crazy things that um, are out there to be discussed. So we are out of time and out of slides. Let's pray and we will be done. Father, thank you for allowing us to be here tonight. I pray that this lesson will be helpful in some way to your people, and I pray that uh, no one would go down bad rabbit holes through this, but that we would um, seek to be equipped to arm ourselves with the armor of God, to not be deceived or to be led astray into uh, things which are evil. I pray that you would help us to be uh, careful, to be alert, to be watchful, And I pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.